Welcome to the Marketing Solutionaire, where we dig into the roots of great enterprise marketing. I'm your host, Chris Kaler, founder and CEO of Emsphere. In this podcast, we seek out the secrets to success in driving high utilization, adoption, and value from marketing technology with an eye toward building a community of excellence that drives our field forward together. So whether you're an established enterprise marketing leader or on your journey to become one, you're in the right place. And now, on to the show. Today's guest is Rob Froman, a true pioneer within the world of agile principles and methods. Rob is the founder and CEO of the Coate Group, a consultancy that helps businesses compete and win in today's complex and dynamic global market. Let's get started and listen to Rob as he unpacks both the myths and the realities of what Agile is and what it's not. Rob, thank you for joining us today on The Marketing Solutionaire. I'm very excited, as I'm sure our listeners are, to hear about your professional journey and thought leadership and experiences in the world of Agile values, principles, and methods. So thank you very much for joining. Really great to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. Well, why don't we just level set the conversation, set the table, and even though we won't spend a lot of time on it, let's go back and and talk about the history and the origins of where did this all start? Sure thing. Agile's been um, it's been a practice for well over twenty years now, and uh, there's some references out there for some of your listeners. Uh, the Agile Manifesto, I think, was uh, originally penned in 2022 or 2002, I should say, if I remember correctly. So it is, we're going well over twenty years now for the practice. The roots go back uh, well into uh, the 1990s, um, and really comes out of a, a lot of manufacturing systems, but. But fundamentally, it, it really took off in the 2000s um, with the invention of Scrum and some other frameworks um, and as applied to uh, software development. Um, software development at the turn of this, it, 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 20 years ago was uh, facing some problems. Uh, the projects were always late and the quality was always poor. So, you know, how do we fix this? And, and that's really the question um, that was, was fundamentally facing the, the founders of, of um, Agile Practices um, and, and the frameworks that resulted from, from that practice uh, are, are what have been implemented since, since about 2000. And, and, and today, they're still being implemented. What's interesting today is the, and I'm very glad we're having this conversation, is it's moved way beyond engineering. Um, and you know, the ability of an organization to be agile with a lowercase a uh, will involve lots of different kinds of teams, legal teams, marketing teams, sales teams all to use these same practices in order to help accelerate uh, an organization. Well, that's uh, great information. And before we dive into that a little deeper, why don't you tell me a little bit about your background, where you started? I know you've been involved with software engineering for 30 years, and you mentioned that's kind of where Agile started, but it's evolved into other things. So tell me a little bit about Rob and the co group and what you're doing now. Sounds good. Yeah. So uh, again, I did start my early career in software engineering uh, and it, it's, it's unbelievable. But yeah, about 30 years ago. Um, and uh, the, the practices at the time were very much waterfall. 
right? So this is directed process control in the sense that somebody would come up with a plan and there'd be a lot of research up front. Then we'd start to do some uh, implementation. Then we'd do some testing and then we would deploy. And that process might take anywhere from you know six months to two or three years. And meanwhile, the entire time that you're doing this, you're building up risk. So this is this these, this is how I was raised. Um, <clears throat> in the early 2000s, things started shifting, and to, it might help your listeners as well. As a, a when I first was introduced to Agile, I was very very skeptical. Um, as a matter of fact, I remember I'm um, going to my boss at the time. This is the early 2000s, and and asking him frankly, you know, how do you expect me to build better software? If I'm holding my engineer's hands singing Kumbaya, right? I, I was very, very skeptical of the practice, um, you know, and it just was because this was the environment that I was raised in. Uh, my first implementation was a Scrum implementation, full, full organization-wide Scrum implementation. Um, Jeff Sutherland, the CEO or the founder of co-founder of Scrum, uh, came in to implement it, and um, as a result of that exercise, I became a true believer in the practice. Ended up writing a paper with Jeff on uh, what we did back at Pegasus Systems back in the day. Um, and really, it, it turned me into uh, someone who really believes in these practices. And I, and I began, began um, gaining expertise in a, in a number of different frameworks and, and got a reputation for uh, really helping to unstick organizations that might be stuck using a lot of the methods that come out of Agile practice. Um, subsequently, I've worked in security for some very large companies, um, leading some very challenging teams. Um, by the missions that we were chasing. And um, about five years ago, launched the COE group that would really, the focus was on organizational change through these practices, OKR is design thinking. All these frameworks, they're not necessarily agile frameworks, but they use a lot of the iterative approach uh, that agile uses. Um, so we, we brought a lot of those frameworks together in the COE group and have been uh, working at that for about five years in senior leadership teams. So let me ask you a question. Uh, a question sure. about going from a skeptic to a believer. And you were in this, I don't have your timeline in front of me, but it didn't sound like you were straight out of college when you were introduced to this. You were probably further in your career. You talked about some of the, hey, this sounds a little mushy. How am I going to accomplish this by doing that? What were some of the small wins that you started seeing, hey, there's something to this method of problem solving and collaboration and focus on the individuals. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I was in my early 30s when I first came across this. And uh, you know, so I'd had 10 years in the field um, working old school project management. And, and project management has its place. So we, I don't want to discount that. There are places where Old school waterfall absolutely works, and, and I can give you some examples. Um, so my journey through this was at first I was skeptical because it felt, to be frank, it felt a little woo-woo. It felt a little soft. Um, and you know, I was used to hard requirements and PRDs and Gantt charts and and all of, and people yelling at you when things weren't on time and on budget, right? And the way we solved for that was we tripled our estimates to make sure we padded them correctly and all the game playing that went with that. Um, what made me a believer was I saw. Uh, I'll give you one story. What it does is it, it really puts ownership. And this is, we, there's been a lot of talk in the past 20 years around empowered teams. In my mind, an empowered team is a team that can make a decision based upon the information that it's given. Agile pushes decision-making deeper in the organization and the information it provides is data. 
So there's data that gets pushed into the team. The team has greater decision-making power. And um, as opposed to, let's say, leadership pushing a decision down on a team. Now, that means that the team has to take responsibility for those decisions, which it can. Um, I'll give you an anecdote. After we've gone through an agile transformation, this is one of the results. Um, a short story here. I was working on a five-person team. We had a fairly aggressive uh, deadline we were trying to hit. Now, I want to separate deadlines from Agile. We'll talk about that separately. But we had a goal that we wanted to hit. As a team, we were empowered to, and we were, we were excited to hit this goal. One of the team members had a heart attack on the team. Um, and so that knocked us down from you know, five people to four people. Um, our, our colleague was fine. He, he worked out okay. Um, and, but we realized that this guy was in a code from his bed if we didn't take over his work for him. So we looked at the data and decided, okay, so how do we, how do we continue using the data that we have, given, the four, given our understanding of our capacity and our capabilities, how might we actually achieve this goal? So we got together as a team. We replanned our sprint. Uh, I took on some work that came out of John's queue. Ed took on some work that came out of John's queue. And we all collaborated to continue to deliver those user stories on a cadence that we had hoped to achieve. We worked our tails off to do it, but we actually accomplished the goal. Now, in recounting this story to um, a colleague of mine one time, uh, she was a bit skeptical and she said, well, why didn't you fire John? And, and my response, I, I, it took me a minute to figure out what she was saying. And I knew exactly what she was saying. Like, you guys delivered without John. So why do you need John? And then the short answer was, uh, is that the pace we were actually operating after three months was not sustainable. We were working 80, 90 hour weeks to get this done. But we were able to divide up the work because we were empowered to do it. We could adapt the plan. We were able to deprioritize some features that may not have been so important to the business and, and prioritize greater features that were. So we ended up delivering the value that we had intended, maybe not the exact plan. If we had been operating on a Gantt chart with everybody's name and the tasks they were going to accomplish week by week, as soon as John left the office, we would have just blown up a plan and said, hey, listen, leadership, we can't get this done because John's not here. We either need a new, another resource and we need to replan this release for the next six months. Did that we project start as a uh, waterfall project? And it no, it was, we were full-blown we full agile okay. at the time. So, we, so that's why we were able to adapt the plan. But to my question, you're like, hey, proof is in the pudding. Something came up. There was some change and we reacted and had success. Now, let me ask you, I'm interested to hear when that unfortunate situation happened with your colleague, did some bell and whistle and light go off and you ran to some agile guideline or um, operating procedure, or did it just naturally set in? Was it rigid? We, we had been practicing, a, we had a good Agile practice at the time. We'd been maybe practicing Agile for you know, several months. So we had an understanding of Agile practices. And really fundamentally what we did is we replanned. Okay, we replanned, which is, it, there, there, there was a changing condition. And we, the team members, knew exactly what was going on. So we chose to replan. Let me give you another scenario. Um, when I was working at, uh, in, techno in, a, in a security company earlier, um, we had a, we, uh, there was a, a situation where we had to, um, uh, we had to shut down some of our services for some, from some, some security, 
uh, needs. And one of these one of these channels was a multi-million dollar annual revenue channel. Okay. And so the business was very interested in getting this revenue stream back online. Okay. Now we had an overall, this was a very, very agile team. Okay. We had an overall uh, portfolio level backlog, if you will. So these are, this is not a list of user stories, but a list of features and, and products. And we, we had anticipated this may adapt over time and we can get into those details. But really, we would target when these things would start and stop based upon weekly conditions. So every week, we would update the forecast as to when things would be started and delivered. Okay. The, the, the start of this revenue stream was about nine months out. <laughs> okay. So like, it just, that was the prioritization. It just happened to be. The senior VP of uh, product management came to me one day and said, Rob, not for nothing, what would it take to get that stuff done sooner than later? And then he winced because he knew in a waterfall, you know, directed process control playbook, he knew the first thing as a manager that I was going to ask for is like a dozen more resources to make it happen. <laughs> right. Like, listen, dude, it's going to cost you millions of dollars to get this thing online because I hold the keys. Right. So, um, but we were agile and, and I understood what he was looking for. And I brought my tech leads in for a couple of days and we talked about how would we reprioritize our backlog? to bring this feature up in priority. And the result was, well, we had to deprioritize some other work that was currently work in progress. It's like, okay, we have these things that we're working on right now, and we have a backlog of things that we want to take on after that. So if we're going to take this work in, we're going to have to move some work out. And the only answer that was not viable to me was adding new resources to the project because it takes about six to nine months to just to spin up an, a, a good engineering resource. It, it, takes, it takes energy to bring, bring people onto a project. So the last thing I wanted to do was add new people to the team. So after a couple of days of discussion, I went back to the senior director and said, look, here's the consequence of this. The work that you expected to get next month won't happen because we're going to shut it down. We're going to pivot the entire two teams over to the, this new block of work. And if we do that, we'll deliver this new set of features in about six weeks. And he said, you have yourself a deal. Uh, six weeks later, we deployed the code. Eight weeks later, we turned the channel on, generating multi-millions of dollars of revenue um, like that. And it cost the business nothing. So this, this is the value of being an agile organization. The engineers didn't freak out. Right. They didn't go, well, I'm working on this and I need to No, they they're like, OK, we're changing what we're working on. We're going to shut this down. We're going to spin this up and then we'll pick that back up later. And the team just simply pivoted their their focus to the new work and we delivered the new work. So this is the value for a business around being agile is that conditions are always changing and you constantly have new opportunities and new threats that you have to deal with. How are you adapting them? So fundamentally, what I would suggest is that the difference between an agile system and a waterfall system is that in a waterfall system, you de-risk the project through analysis. And in, in, in agile systems, you de-risk the uh, project through iteration. Now, a great place for waterfall, I would suggest, is in submarine design. I, I don't think it'd be a great idea to build a submarine, put a whole bunch of people on it, put it underwater and see what happens. Okay. So this is where, this is why submarine design might take 
many, many, many years, okay? Because we really can't afford to put 100 men to the bottom of the ocean um, every time we iterate, <laughs> right? So, so we're going to de-risk that program through analysis. It's going to take a lot longer. And, I was like, and the technology that's actually deployed by the time you finally build these things might be 10 years old, right? All right. Well, well you mentioned earlier that the origins of Agile were rooted in software engineering. Back over, geez, almost 20, 25, 20, 25 years ago. A lot of a lot has changed, and yep. you see these agile principles and methods uh, being infused throughout these large enterprises. Uh, putting on our marketing solutionaire hat, and let's talk about marketing a second, and let's. Let's talk about some of the similarities. I mean, naturally, the, the history of marketing and uh, technical uh, services, IT, you know, there's a little bit siloed. Now, that is coming tighter and tighter and closer and closer together just because of the rapidly changing landscape. But how can you apply these agile methodologies? What have you seen in terms of the similarities between technical software engineering sol uh, engineers solving problems and marketers who are trying to solve problems and, and keep a pulse on the changing landscape of their market, their customers, their particular products? So there's a lot of similarities. Uh, a couple of things that have shifted over the past couple of, even just past couple of years, um, that is making this more uh, valuable um, is, uh, let, let me back up for a second. Yeah. Just answer, to, to answer your question, Chris, the, the, a number of things have changed over the past 20 years. So first of all, um, what engineering has experimented with over maybe 20 years has, has become visible into the rest of the organization. You know, how, how do we do um, how do we become more predictable in what we deliver? How do we adapt to change better? How do we reduce waste in the system? Okay. And very often, again, waterfall can be a very expensive process because in order to commit time, scope, and resources, you're going to have to pad your estimates. Nobody wants to hear that. But when I hear a project manager tell me that they brought a project in on time and under budget, they simply know how to pad an estimate which means that they probably put 20%, 30% more into the project than they needed to. Okay. So like, and, and what ends up happening is that can result in gold plating and some other funny effects. So organizations looking at engineering are starting to discover that, wait a minute, these guys are kind of iterating and they're doing a better job of quality, predictability, uh, reduced waste. And they're thinking, we can do that too. <laughs> so like, and it's part of what we're having the conversation here about. Uh, another thing that happened, I think, is coming out of COVID, um, and I'm, I'm getting a lot more um, inbound questions around how do we apply agile practices outside of engineering? I work with some biopharma companies that are doing this and, and, and some others. Is I think that what one thing COVID taught us also is that we can do things better through operational excellence. So now what's happening is as organizations are looking at this, not just an IT department or an engineering organization, as the C-suite is looking at how do we become an agile business, it's naturally putting pressure on shared services and other kinds of teams to deliver in an agile way. And what I mean by an agile way is through an iterative way, 
Okay. So it's what's happening is legal teams are looking at agile practices and HR teams looking at agile practices and marketing teams and sales are looking at agile practices. Um, and I'm using a lowercase a and not any specific framework here because it does all differ, but basically this iterative approach, which is we're going to, we're going to run a little experiment, maybe over one or two weeks, we're going to deliver some value. And then we're going to figure out, do we need to adapt again? As opposed to building one right plan and not showing anybody your cards for six months. And then the big reveal at the end, only to find out it's not what the customer wanted or it's not what was needed. So I think what's happening is the, the, the business world is kind of waking up to the idea that these practices aren't just for engineers. Okay. It may have started there, but it really is for any group um, of teams that is doing that is doing work that would benefit from iteration and learning as opposed to like fixed time and scope kinds of resources. Yeah. And in today's landscape of eliminating waste and getting services and products out to the market quicker, it's, as you mentioned, it's getting the C-suite attention and it's coming down to the different functional organizations. So my next question is kind of pointed at that. All right. Uh, the software engineers, kind of nailed it, got it down. They have been doing this for, it's evolved over 20 years. Let's infuse it throughout the organization. How, do, how does a large enterprise go about onboarding these new groups where they're getting the, we're going to be an agile company? What is the normal process of someone who's the <laughs> senior vice president of that whether it's the marketing group or another functional group, and how does that kind of drip down to executing it and doing it well? Um, if we're going to start, you know, top of the organization for organizational change, and then we can talk maybe more specifically around how marketing might okay. benefit. But the but at the at the top of the org, what it comes down to is really that leadership team needs to really own this. Um, it can't just be sponsored by a leadership team; it needs to be owned because. Fundamentally, and, and some of this stuff comes back to if anybody's read, you know, Patrick Lencioni's um, The Advantage. It's really around establishing a high-functioning leadership team that is collaborating and communicating using data. Now, where's that data coming from? Most most organizations will have data coming out of an engineering organization around the capacity and capability of those teams. I'll know how much I can do, um, and how much of it, and, and and what I can do. Okay. Whereas many shared services teams won't necessarily have that answer. So it's going to immediately put pressure on the leaders of those organizations to start to collaborate on these practices. So I think what it comes down to is there needs to be a shared understanding that we're going to go do this together. Let, let me give you an example of this. Um, I was working with um, an organization. There were five engineering teams, about 25 people in engineering overall across three continents. And we had established an understanding of what that the team's capacity was. If anybody's interested in this, they're, they're more than happy to reach out and I can, I can go into the gory details of this. There's a lot of data here. Um, but fundamentally, I knew that this team could accomplish, don't worry about the, the, the metric, but about 1,250 story points a quarter. Okay, that was the capacity of this organization. I don't care if they were building small engines or software because they had an understanding of how big something was, their, their capacity was 1250. 
This is tw- across 25 people over a quarter. Um, the variability quarter on quarter was no more than 50 points, which is 5%. This was a stable organization. If some executive had come in and said, hey, listen, I want this team to do you know, 22% more, the answer is no. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Now, the executive can come in and reprioritize what was at the top of the work they got done. Okay. But we knew how much this org could do. And, and that is an incredibly powerful thing because it leads to predictability. You can imagine if I've got 2,500 X's of stuff to do, and my capacity is 1,250 of stuff to do every quarter, it's going to take us about two quarters to get all this stuff done. It's, it's pretty straightforward math. So getting other organizations, marketing, sales, um, you know, even HR, legal, to start to understand what their capacities are is the first place to start because now we can start to understand how much can we actually get done. Now, this is a very big deal in organizations because it's gonna, we're asking teams to measure themselves, not individuals, teams. And that transition from, uh, trust me, I'll get it done, to here is the data that proves that I will get it done is a very large cultural transition and a leadership team should be prepared for that. Well, that's uh, very interesting. And you mentioned something about measurement, uh, data-driven decision-making. Um, it sounds a lot like challenges marketing has in this world of the amount of data that's just collected and, and generated. And so that's what that's that's a piece of the pie. They're they're not going to be short on that resource, but need to know how to digest that uh, and get the right answers out of it. I read one of your articles where you talked about it's it's not just about measuring it. It's uh measuring the right metrics and making the right decisions about the right data. Do you want to expand upon that that sure. you talked about? And, and feel, feel free to plug your, uh, or I will, why we measure. That was... Yeah, like, it's, uh, yeah, I, feel free to read the article. You know, I, I'm glad you read it, Chris. It's, uh, it really is about measuring the right things. Um, the uh, another story because I love telling stories. Uh, a colleague of mine who was a chief technology officer in a startup in in, in Massachusetts um, walked me into his his office one day, and there was a wall that was you know thirty feet wide and ten feet high, and it had fifty monitors on it measuring ten thousand different things. And he was very proud of himself, showing me all of this data. And I looked at him and I said, like, that's terrifying. Like. What am I supposed to do with that, right? This is a 747 cockpit. Like, I just need to know if I can commit my code today or if I can ask my partner to publish the blog article to the website, right? Like, it depends on what you're doing. So data is, the difference between data and information is very important. So we want to make sure that when we're talking about teams, first of all, measuring teams is not the same thing as measuring people. And I just want to be really clear on this because this, this actually can push very hard on some HR aspects as well. If you, if you challenge an individual to commit to a number about the capacity or capability of what they can do, they're going to sandbag. As a matter of fact, they should sandbag significantly because their job might be at risk if they don't follow through or their reputation. 
and naturally as human beings, Chris, if I work for you, I respect you, man. I like, I don't want to disappoint you just as my boss, right? It's not, I'm not worried about my paycheck. You're not going to fire me, but I just don't want to let you down. So what we want, the first sets of measurements we want to look at are measurements that are of team performance, team capability, team capacity, team happiness. There, there are a bunch of different metrics and dimensions we can look at. And then we want to start to trend them over time through iterations. Okay. And that's a mouthful to say, but basically you can insert any sports analogy here. Okay. At the beginning of the season, who's going to win the pennant, right? No idea. But about halfway through the season, we're starting to get an idea, right? I mean, because the data is starting to tell us, like, Team X is never going to make it no matter what happens. <laughs> but the Orioles made this year, right? <laughs> exactly right. So, but at the beginning of the season, you, you take a guess at it, right? You look at the lineup, you look who's, who's on the team and so forth. You look at the skills, but you look at who's coaching them, all the things. So you might have a guess. But if anybody was to say, you know, on day one of the season that the Patriots are going to win the Super Bowl, like, like – it's a great guess, okay, but you're you're unencumbered by data that proves that that is true. Um, so what we're trying to do is really understand the performance of of teams, and there are a lot of different dimensions. And to the point of that article, there are some key measurements. And we can certainly talk more to this at some point in the future, getting more specific about it. So how do we measure a team? Again, it's a, it's a much deeper topic, but it is it is really quite possible to measure teams and to measure them in a way that is accurate. And what I mean by that is that over time, it will be an indicator of, of their performance and it can be quite stable. That's very interesting because the conversations between uh, CFOs and CMOs, that's a very important conversation in terms of what metrics are we capturing? How are we measuring performance? We just don't need vanity metrics. We want outcome-based results. Yeah, and that's a whole set, different set of metrics. So I think like a lot of marketing has, a, there, there are a lot of metrics, you know, around analytics and everything else that they can measure around the performance, not of the team, but of the, of the marketing, it's the work itself, the outcome that they're trying to achieve. You know, are we increasing market share or mind or mind share, you know, would be a metric that doesn't necessarily mean the team is performing well. Right. Or it just means that. Yeah. How many, how many leads look at, look at all these leads we got. Well, how many convert it? into customers. Exactly. And are they the right leads? And, you know, are there two people on the team that hate each other so much that they can't get anything done? Like these are things that we really need to go figure out because all of those things are waste. When we start looking at waste, that's when we're looking at team performance. Like where is the waste? Where are we relearning? Um, where are we repeating things that don't matter? Where are we wasting our time? And, and so this is a whole set of metrics in itself that might not be marketing metrics, they're team metrics, but marketing teams may not actually measure them. Because what I think to your point, Chris, you know, what a lot I see in a number of marketing teams, like things are changing fast, right? I mean, look at, look at the technology shifts that have happened just in the past two years in marketing, right? Let's just talk about Twitter to X and the rise of TikTok. I, I'd love to hear the CMO tell me exactly what's going to happen in the United States around TikTok regulation. Does anybody know? Right. Right. So how, how do we, you know, so how do we deal with that, right? You have, and you have a bunch of different dimensions around TikTok, security, mindshare, like, so demographic. So, you know, how do we know what bets to make? So if we wanted to do a big marketing campaign, a social media marketing campaign over the course of the next year, like if, if you were to write down the plan for 18 months 
around exactly what's going to happen. I mean, good luck that being true in, in a year and a half. Once again, emphasizing the need for this iterative approach. Exactly. Observe, measure. Respond. Respond. Well, one last thing before we... Uh, It'll, it'll probably deserve its own conversation on another podcast. But exploring sure. this and, and, and talking with you. So as our, our listeners know, I, I run a services company. Uh, we implement and provide ongoing solution management and managed services for our customers who have purchased a software platform developed by a software vendor whose engineering team developed that platform that my customers bought through these agile values and principles. We talked earlier about the trend of agile uh, methods and principles being implemented top-down from the CEO. So my platform vendors have been doing it, developing their software. My, my clients, that's being some of them at a different maturity level of implementing Agile within my, our customers are in the marketing organization. They get this platform and we stand it up and implement it. We, we aren't software developers. Sure, we may do some integrations and customizations. But we're, we're essentially configuring and designing and solutioning using the platform features and functionalities to meet their need. So my point is, in, in, including us, Msphere, with our clients and the platform partner, you're, you're getting a gang of multiple different parties. And to use this iterative approach and observation and constant recalibration. It's going to take tight coordination between those three different entities and sometimes more when there are other contractors or partners involved. So what, what's been your experience of how do you get that posse together at different levels of maturity, multiple different perspectives, one from a Soft, you know, the, the platform developer, one from the customer, it's coming top down. And then a services provider who has their own methodologies, albeit agile, iterative, adaptable. How do you put that in, blend it and, and make a nice smoothie and, and get that coordination and collaboration? Are there best practices or tools or methods that you see? Used in that situation. Absolutely. It's, it's actually reminiscent of uh, the age old fight between product and engineering and, uh, you know, requirements versus delivery. So what I would argue is that with, with three um, different stakeholders at the table, potentially, right? Service provider, client, and, vend and, and software vendor. Um, and if there is a desire, especially from the client's perspective, to do this in an agile way, which is probably what they're saying. Right? They're saying that they want to be agile, but what they really probably mean is that they want this thing to be successful. Um, it's going to require a lot of communication. 
And these practices can come to the table. The first thing, the first thing I would recommend doing is having an honest conversation um, across the table around how will we work together, develop a working agreement. And what I mean by that working agreement is, you know, how what practices will we use to work together? Without that, very often what happens, and this might be your experience, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically what ends up happening is teams of people start throwing requirements at each other. Right. Like, and it's, you know, you're getting a list of requirements and then you're trying to get your head around these requirements and you're passing on requirements to somebody else. Nobody's talking to each other. You're just emailing each other requirements, right? So I would have a, I would offer a radical idea, which is you get three parties sitting down for half a day and you figure it out together. And, you know, provided that you have good agile experience and you start, you start talking about it in an iterative way. What, you know, what I would do is, you know, perhaps the earliest milestones are, what is the earliest demonstration of value the three of us can build together tomorrow? And I mean tomorrow, not two months from now, tomorrow, right? What is the great, what's the first validating experiment we can put in place? And let's make sure that we work together on an iterative cycle, okay? So we might, it might not be formal scrum or Kanban, and we can talk about the techniques almost don't matter. They're just tools. The technique should meet the needs of the team, but there should be commitment from the team and their working agreement that we're going to work iteratively. And what I mean by that is every three weeks, we're going to deliver some increment of value. And and I can give some use cases here. Yeah. And you ask, what's my experience on what we do to make that successful is, hey, the iterative approach is key. But before you start iterating, there's still, believe it or not, a little bit of planning that has to happen before we all jump in into the same bus and, you know, figure out, uh, hey, we're currently here. What's the destination we're going to? So my experience, and I'll, I'll let you know if we're breaking any uh, scrum, Kanban or agile methodologies, principles or values, because I don't want anyone from the... Uh, uh, reading the Agile Manifesto showing up at my doorstep. But what we do is, you know, think about it. You have a sales cycle. It could be as long as nine months, sometimes a year, sometimes quicker. A lot of different players uh, in that discussion from the client to the software vendor to a services provider. And what we found successful is just stepping back, taking a Time out once that uh, statement of work is signed and actually st still do some old school planning and coordination to get alignment. Now, this this does not take a long time, but it's just good old fashioned um, planning, uh, having a plan, knowing that it's going to evolve and change. But it's something you can put at the center of the table that everyone can look uh, at. And get 100% consensus and alignment on that plan, that approach, those priorities. And then swing it straight into iterative, you know, discovery and going through all that type of um, observation and recalibration. Now, I don't know if I broke any rules there, but that's how we, you know, uh, we're, we're kind of in the middle, right? We're not. The client, we didn't develop the software. 
and we're kind of in between. Um, but we're the ones pushing it and, and standing it up, obviously, with multiple people on the team. But that coordination and collaboration and alignment and consensus is step one. And it sounds like that's pretty much embedded into the principles of Agile. Uh, honestly, Chris, I, I, I really hope there aren't any Agile police out there. I haven't met any. Um, and the last thing I would ever want to see happen is, is you know, Agile turn religious. It is, it is, it is a, uh, and, and the founders of these frameworks would tell you the truth, I, it, um, that they agree with this, that there are places where this stuff doesn't work. Um, I would argue that Agile is a radical application of common sense. So let's look at let, it. From let that me get that one again. That sounded good. A radical, <laughs> the radical application, application of common sense. Of common okay. sense. And we're going to validate common sense with data. Okay. Um, so I think at the macro level, there is kind of a milestone approach that you kind of need to hit. You know, you've probably got fixed price contracts and labor costs and things like that that you have to manage to. At the micro level, you're iterating. And this is how you de-risk it. You know, so I think that there needs to be some, you know, what I would argue a, a, a dangerous perhaps approach on this would be to, with this complicated kind of nature of a project that you've got going on. My guess is there are some things that you guys do that are completely canned, right? Right. Let's, for example, sure. let's identify the APIs that we need to, or the, the, the connectors that we need to put in here. Like that should be known up front. We shouldn't discover that stuff, right? And if you know that these are the connectors we're going to go to, most of the time we, we know exactly how to do that anyway. Okay. So these might be things that could be put on a schedule, but understanding that we're going to iterate to that point. And if we start finding that that date might start slipping, uh, we escalate it early. We don't try to fix it, not tell anybody. We, we have the data that says, listen, things are slipping. And we start to elevate and set expectations around forecasting. Okay. So what I, I don't mean to sound like I'm speaking up both sides of my mouth. What I mean to say is, is that at the macro level or the program or portfolio level, it will be much more waterfall-y, if you will. Because the delivery dates don't have to be to the minute. It might be plus or minus a week, right? At the detail level where the work's actually happening, if we have a deadline, for example, let's say we launch today and the implementation is expected to be done on January 15th. Let's just give it a three-month cycle, okay? Um, I should start from day one, start forecasting, am I going to hit that date? And I don't mean, what I mean by forecast is not asking a manager, will we hit this? I, I want the data showing me. Okay, one of the measurements is the percent complete per iteration that I like to measure. What I mean by that is if you get 10% of a project done every iteration, it will take you 10 iterations to get it done, plus or minus some standard deviation. And I don't care how long the iteration is, man. I don't care how big the work is. So what it comes down to is we want to start to forecast, are we going to hit those deliverables? And if we're not going to, then let's have a conversation about what we're going to do about it. Are we going to rescope? Are we going to cut work? Or are we going to try to add resources? The last one is the worst thing you can possibly do. All right. <laughs> it never, adding, yes. I'll ask one last question, then I'll sure. ask for a quick wrap up and some advice from you. Uh, but I, 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 I do want to get your approval and pat on the back that at least 20 years ago when, uh, we founded Msphere. that uh, our tagline was change happens, let it flow. 
I guess that is still in vogue today. I I believe so. Uh, the only constant, I think this was, I, I, was it Einstein that said this? You know, the only constant in the universe is change. Right. Um, and there are some things that don't adapt. Let, let me give you an example, just to go to the counterbalance. A place where it would not apply agile would be in a place where I know the requirements and I know what I want. If if I've been asked by my significant other to build a walkway out front to pave a walkway, right? Now I can go learn how to do that by going to Home Depot, buying a bunch of bricks, Googling it, <laughs> going back to Home Depot, buying stuff that I didn't realize I needed, going buying tools. Like it'd take me six weeks and it would look terrible because I don't have any skill there, right? In, in this situation, the technology paving, okay, has been done for thousands of years by expert masons. The requirements are known. The walkway goes here. The skills are known. We've been doing it for thousands of years as professional masons. Rob is not a professional mason. So, you know, my better option there is to do a fixed price contract, write a check. The guys show up at eight o'clock in the morning. They're out by noon. It looks beautiful. Uh, I love that. So basically, if I had started a paving business and came up with that tagline, you'd say, Chris, what the heck are you thinking? But I, being in this, yeah, go hire some, <laughs> go hire some professionals. Yeah. But, but being in an industry like marketing with a changing landscape and the need for collaboration and connectivity, that's that's what we leaned into. Finally, exactly, and that's where agile. Yes. How about a real quick wrap up of advice recommendations you would have, whether they're in marketing, not in marketing, but they may be around the water cooler hearing, maybe they're a program manager, a project manager, and all of a sudden maybe, maybe it's new uh, initiative, but they've heard, Hey, you, you need to do this in an agile manner with a B and C agile practices. What's your advice? It, it really is to embrace this. At the same time, hold it lightly. Don't don't turn this into, um, you know, don't become overzealous on this. There, there are no agile police. It really is the power to adapt to changing conditions. And, you know, really embrace it. It's hard. What I would suggest is, is that what we're asking people to do is to change the way they work. And in Western culture, um, that's a very, very, very hard thing to do. Chris, I'll leave you with this. If I meet you at a cocktail party, the first question I ask you is your name. What's the second question I ask you? Well, a lot of times people say, what do you do? But What do you do? Right. And now, now we're asking people to change what they do. This pushes on the sense of identity. It's super important that if you embrace this, understand it's going to make you uncomfortable. If you're leading teams that you're asking to do this, it's going to make them uncomfortable too. Invest in the journey, allow time for learning. But this is really something to take seriously. It becomes a superpower if you can do it. Um, but understand that you're actually changing the way people operate and think. So be patient. All right. Well, be patient. Thank you for that great advice. Rob, uh, anything in terms of your contact information, best way to get in touch with you or any resources about what you talked about today, where's a good place uh, to find those or contact you directly? Absolutely. Yeah. The Kuwait group, feel free to go Google that. It's co8group.com. Um, feel free to also check my personal blog, which I put some things out on, on robfroman.com. And I'm rob at coatgroup.com. If anybody wants to reach out and talk to me directly, um, 
Chris, great topic. I'm so glad to have you uh, bridging this this gap. Um, it's uh, it's it's wonderful to see. You know, you're right in the middle of it, and um, you know, thanks for thanks for reaching left and right and and pulling pulling um, all of these people together. It's 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 great to see. Yeah, we're in the middle of it. We've been doing it, but you know how this conversation started. You reached out to me several weeks ago. I said I'm traveling. I'm coming back. I was expecting a uh, hey, what's up? What are you doing? What's up with Coe? What's up with Msphere? And y- you talked about me about your focus on uh, the agile principles and methodology. Probably shouldn't call it a methodology. And then I started saying, Rob, we need to talk. <laughs> I, 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 I want to, you know, r- really boost our um, adoption uh, and implementation of these principles throughout our company and to benefit our clients. So thank you very much. Look forward to uh, connecting and engaging with you here in the near future. Likewise, Chris. Best of luck to you. Thank you.